First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate Cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. You are listening to the Thoughts from a Page podcast. My name is Cindy Burnett, and I love all things bookish. If you are looking for book recommendations, please check out the two columns that I write for a wonderful Houston publication, The Buzz Magazines. My weekly column is entitled Page Turners, and I highlight various books and authors and other fun book topics. For my monthly column called Buzz Reads, I choose my top five picks for each month. You can also email me at cindyhburnett at att.net for personalized book recommendations. I get those requests all the time, and I love replying to them. Today, I have the honor of interviewing Christy Woodson Harvey. Christy is the best-selling author of six novels, including her latest, Feels Like Falling. Her writing has appeared in numerous online and print publications, including Southern Living, Traditional Home, USA Today, Domino, and O. Henry Magazine. She blogs with her mom, Beth Woodson, on Design Chic and loves connecting with fans on ChristyWoodsonHarvey.com. She lives on the North Carolina coast with her husband and son, where she is working on her next novel. Hello, Christy. I am so glad you are here today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here, Cindy. I'm so excited that you're here too. I loved Feels Like Falling and can't wait to talk about it with you. I feel like this book is everywhere, and I loved Ellen Hildebrand's blurb calling you the next major voice in Southern fiction. That had to be fun. That was pretty amazing. (laughs) There was a lot of happy dancing and champagne. (laughs) I don't blame you. That's very exciting. Why don't we start out by you telling me a little bit about Feels Like Falling? Feels Like Falling is a story about Gray and Diana, who are two women from very different worlds who meet when they're both having a really bad day, sort of on the heels of a really bad year. And so on a day when Gray could really use a little good karma and Diana could really use a little good luck, instead, Gray inadvertently gets Diana fired from her job. So this is not an ideal way for these two people to meet, but it does end up thrusting them together um, and helping them form this sort of unconventional friendship. And they learn really quickly that they do actually have quite a lot in common. Um, And so they really just help each other move into what I like to call happily ever after the sequel. I loved the way they bonded with each other. And it did seem like at the beginning, they didn't have much in common. But as they became friends, they actually had a lot in common. And I thought that was great. Well, thank you. How did you come up with the subject matter? And then did you have to do a lot of research? Well, my stories always come from these really random, seemingly insignificant places and feels like falling was no different. I actually walked into a drugstore one day and was picking up some photographs and some of them had been taken by a photographer who was a friend. And I went to go pick up my photos and the lady behind the counter said, well, you can't have these without a signed release because they're from a professional photographer. And I was like, oh my gosh, like she's my friend. She lives on the street. This is not like they're going to be, you know, appearing in Vogue next week or anything. 
And, um, but I'm a good little girl. So I got in the car and I drove home and weirdly she had actually given me a release. I don't know that any photographer has ever done that before, but she had given me one. And so I had it signed and I even knew where it was, which was even more of a miracle. (laughs) So I got the release and I went back and I got my photos and all was well, but I was walking out of the drugstore and I thought, what if I hadn't gone back and gotten the release? And what if she had gotten fired because of it? And it just was this little spark of an idea. And I just thought, you know, you hear about meet cutes and TV or movies or whatever, and they're usually reserved for people who are going to fall in love. But I also think we have meet cutes with our friends. I mean, you know, we, we are always meeting people that end up you know, having different places and playing different roles in our lives. And for Gray and Diana, I just thought this would be a really interesting kind of different way for them to meet. And I liked the dynamic of Gray sort of owing something to Diana. I felt like it put her, she is probably the character that just because of her position in life would have had a little bit of the upper hand, but because of this guilt that she feels, it sort of levels the playing field for these two women right off the bat. And I do think it helps, you know, sort of open them up. There wasn't just tons and tons of research for this book. A couple of things that I did have to research, Diana has a brother who has autism and I had had known plenty of people who, who have autism, but just researching very specifically what would have happened, you know, when he was put into foster care as a child, Diana and her siblings were abandoned by their mother. And so Philip was put into foster care as a child. And, you know, what would that have looked like for him? And then what would the process have been like for her to find him? And then at this point in her life, you know, knowing that she really wants to move him back home with her? Like, what would that process look like? So um, I did do some research on that. And that was a little bit different, especially because it was 25 years ago or so. So things look very different now than they did then. And then I'm trying to think the other things, Gray has a blog that she sort of parlays into this marketing business. And so I knew about blogs because I've had a blog for about 10 years with my mom called Design Chic. And I work with a company that I would equate to Gray's Click Market. And so I sort of felt like I knew a little bit about what it, what that company would look like, but I did a little bit of research about, you know, what it would look like to be on the other side of that company and what they would do. So that was kind of fun, but this was not a terribly, terribly research heavy book. I'm writing a terribly, terribly research heavy book right now. <laughs> I took for granted how great it was to just have laptop will travel. Now it's like have laptop and 11 research books will travel. <laughs> <laughs> Makes it a tiny bit harder to travel, right? Yes. <laughs> well, you know, that's interesting. Back to the dynamic with Diana and Gray. That's, that's a good idea thinking about Gray needing to not have the upper hand. And in the end, I loved both characters, which a lot of times when you've got two characters like that, you'll bond more with one than the other. But sure. I equally liked them both very much and thought they were great women. But but I felt like Diana really helped Gray more in the end, completely mentally or you know emotionally than, than Gray helped her. I was glad it worked that way. Oh, 100%. And I do think Diana is the sort of natural caregiver and she comes into Gray's life during a time when she needs to be taken care of. She's lost her mother and she's having a really hard time with it. And Diana just, she's, I mean, she's had a much harder life than, than Gray has. And so in that way, even though there's not a huge age difference between them, I think Diana seems a lot older because she just has so much wisdom. She's lived so many lives in her 40 years. She has a really good outlook on, she's snarky. She's not Pollyanna. You know, she's not like, Oh, it's all going to be rainbows. Like she's, that's definitely not her personality, but she has a really good grasp on 
that sort of this too shall pass. Like she has, she understands that it's terrible, but also that, that she'll move through it. And I think she really helps Gray kind of move into that mindset as well. And I think that, you know, you really touched on something because I think the ways that Gray helps Diana are really a little more material, helping her get a job, helping her get back on her feet. Although I do think in some ways, and I didn't really realize this until the book was over and it wasn't intentional, but you see throughout the book, you know, Diana just can never pick the right man. She's really bad at it. Um, And you start to kind of learn why she carries some really deep scars and she just cannot open herself up. She can't let herself love anyone. And I think it's in really letting Gray and her son Wagner love her and letting them be her family that she really opens herself up to being able to fall in love and being able to have a family and all of those things that she was really closed off about in the beginning. So, you know, I do think that they, they really help each other. And I love when women can do that for each other. And I think it's true to life. I mean, I think that women really do help each other in those ways. No, that's true. I hadn't really thought about that. I thought more about Gray providing her a place to live and a job and some of those things. But you're right. They really do balance each other out and help in different ways. And that is the beauty of female friendship is having those people there to pick you up when you need to be picked up and always have your back and help you become a better you. Yeah, absolutely. That's the hope anyway. Yes, exactly. (laughs) What was the highlight of writing Feels Like Falling? So it feels like Falling was a really interesting book for me because it I actually wrote it in 2016 and then rewrote it in 2019. And I think it was just really fun for me to get to go back and look at a book that I had written three years earlier and think, you know, how do I make this better? And the fun thing for me about writing, well, the fun thing and the terrifying thing, if I'm being completely honest, is that if I sit here in this chair right now and I think about my next book, I can't tell you what's going to happen because I just don't know. Like I, my brain just doesn't work that way. I mean, little snippets here and there will happen, but it's really when I am at the computer and my fingers are on the keyboard and I am on the page that things really start to develop. And so for me, being able to go back to this book and see what developed, you know, all these years later was really fun. And like, I never, in the original version, Trey was not in this book and he ends up being one of my favorite characters. And it was like, when I started writing, you know, just sort of rewriting. He just appeared in one of the scenes and I was like, who is he? What's his deal? What's he doing? Like, who's Where did this he come guy? from? Yeah. Where did he come from? <laughs> Philip, who is Diana's brother that I mentioned earlier, plays a significantly larger role in this book now than he did. And I think gave her character a lot of depth because you see a very loving and patient side of her that you don't necessarily see in her relationship with Gray. And Diana has this sort of long-standing dream that she's going to have this little restaurant and sort of have this thing of her own. And she didn't really have that in the first book. And I thought, no, like this is a really strong and amazing woman. And she's been through a lot of things, but she has goals and she has things that she wants. All of that is to say that I think the highlight of, of writing it was my editor had read this book in 2016. It was on, I was on submission for it. So a lot of editors had read it. And she loved this book, but wanted me to write the Peachtree Bluff series first. So I wrote the Peachtree Bluff series. And then when we were, you know, after The Southern Child of Paradise came out, or it must have been before that, because surely we would have had a book done. But I remember her saying, you know, I really want Gray and Diana. And I, that meant a lot to me because I just thought there's something to this story. If she remembered it three years later, there's something in there that's worth saving because as a writer, you never know. I mean, you're just 
you, you always hope that there's something that a reader is going to remember about the story or something that's going to make it special or different from something else that you've done, but you just don't know. Well, definitely your readers have connected with them because as you look at the reviews and see what people have to say about it, people love them both. So that's wonderful that your editor recognized that and was able to make sure the book got it out into the world. Yes, I'm very grateful to her for that. And and I'm just shocked. You know, this has been an interesting time to launch a book. And as you well know, I mean, you are so entrenched in the book world and have been so helpful and have helped so many authors launch their books during this really unusual time. And it made me sort of sad to think, oh, it feels like following's going to die. And it's just, but it's been my most successful book ever. So it just really goes to show, I think that reading communities, writers, writing communities, I think everyone is just really just bonded together to say, okay, let's make these these books happen despite what else is going on. And I'm just, I'm so grateful for that because it will break your heart to think, that your book wouldn't be well-received because you weren't on tour. No, I think that's right. And I think the upside is that there are now so many online events and people have learned how to move online and do all these various events and you can reach people across the country versus just in one location. But it is fun to go out and see people in person. So it's hard. It and yeah. it's it's nice not to be a debut author too because I think it would be really hard to be a debut author oh, in the midst of all be- of this. It would just be so hard. I have such sympathy for all the debut authors because, you know, this is my sixth book. So I have this great community of people like you who are already around me, people I'd already worked with, bloggers and bookstagrammers and people with communities like yours and that, that were able to to reach out and, and help or I could reach out to them and they could help. And um, that was huge. But as a debut, you know, you don't have as many people kind of in your court yet. So, yeah, it was very, very fortunate. Well, and obviously a good book is going to stand out like this one is. So, but I'm just so excited. I was excited to see it everywhere. And every time it comes across my feed on Facebook or Instagram or anywhere, I'm like, oh, I love that one. Thank you. Thank you. So what comes first for you, the plot or the characters? Definitely the characters, always the characters. Um, and, and I guess when I was saying, you know, I can sit here and not be able to tell you what's going to happen in the book, but I can sit here and be able to tell you who the people in the book are. And so I do think that's, I, I know for sure, I definitely write character driven stories. I hope there's enough plot in there to keep people reading and picking up night after night, but they are definitely character driven stories. And it's the characters that really fascinate me. I love to think about why they do what they do. And I'm like, oh, I should have been a psychologist. And like, I'll sit down on the page and I'll start writing. And I'm like, huh, that's really interesting. And I'll have this like light bulb moment about like my life or one of my friends, or this is why that person does that or whatever it is. It's, it's really funny to kind of um, be, you know, in that spot of trying to get into someone's head and figure out why they do what they do. No, I think that's true. And I think probably most writers, that's the case. Maybe for a thriller, the plot comes first, but I think probably most of the time you start with characters and then sort of meld them into the storyline and see, like you said, where they're going to go. So that's an interesting way to look at it. Um, So I love your covers. I think you've done a great job of branding. Like you see your book and you know it's your book. How do your covers come about? Well, first, thank you. That's very nice because covers are a huge deal, of course, and people can say what they want to, but when they walk in that store and there are thousands and thousands of books, you better have a reason to make them pick yours up. I wish I could take more credit for them. 
but I really just have an incredible cover design team at Simon and Schuster. But I do have some kind of funny cover stories that, you know, if we have time, I will tell you one really quickly. Oh, I'd love to hear one. Okay, good. So for Dear Carolina, um, my very first book, it's set on a farm in North Carolina. And so, you know, I had written this book about this farm and we had, it was my very first cover conference and I was very nervous. And so, you know, they asked me all these questions about North Carolina and what this farm would look like. And they had me like go out to farms and take pictures of trees in North Carolina. And then I get the cover and it's a girl on the beach. (laughs) I was like, what? Like, like is, was there some kind of miscommunication here? It's like there's there's no there's no scene with a girl on the beach. Like this cover doesn't make sense. And they were like, well, you know, marketing thinks it'll do really well, and <laughs> blah blah blah. You know, all these reasons. Like we really like it. We hope that you do. You know, those things. And I was it was my first book. I didn't know that I could push back and be like, no, this is not the cover. So we actually rewrote part of the book and rewrote one of the most pivotal scenes of the book with the girl on the beach so that the cover that they wanted would make sense in the story. I probably would not do that now. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I even knew that story. So that's, that that's hilarious. Yes. I, but mostly it's been really easy. We're working on the cover for my next book now though, Under the Southern Sky. And it's been a little bit tricky because you know, I definitely have girl on the beach kind of covers, which I really love, but this is not necessarily a girl on the beach kind of story. I mean, that could work. Like we could make that work, but I think they're trying to come up with a little bit of a different concept. And so that's always scary to step out of the box because I feel like I'm good now at like picking girl on the beach covers. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, that'll be exciting to see. I look forward to that now. Well, thank you. Me too. Uh, So tell, I was going to ask you, that was one of my next questions. Are you working on anything right now? So tell us about that one. Yes. So Under the Southern Sky is coming out April 20th, 2021. I just got a pub date. Very excited. And it's a story that I have been thinking about for probably five years, which is a long time for me to be thinking about a story because usually I'm kind of in and out with them. But It is a story about a woman who is an investigative journalist, and she accidentally discovers that some embryos that were frozen by one of her childhood best friends and his late wife have been deemed abandoned. And so basically what that means is that their future is uncertain. You know, they might not be destroyed, but they could be. They might not be donated to science, but they could be. So she's sort of, and and this is an interesting kind of ethical thing in our society right now too, is what do you do with these hundreds of thousands of embryos that no one's paying for, but they're, they're embryos. So they're technically viable life. So it's a kind of interesting ethical situation as well. But she ends up having to tell her friend that this has happened, knowing that it's going to open up a lot of wounds for him and bring up a lot of things from the past. Um, And then he has to decide what he's ultimately going to do with them. So the story is told from the perspective of Amelia, who is the investigative journalist, and Parker, who is her childhood friend, and then Amelia's mother, Elizabeth, who is a good Southern meddling mama that we all need. And then we get to see journal entries from Greer, who is the late wife of Parker. And so each of the characters in this story has a secret that has absolutely nothing to do with the embryos, but that ultimately leads to what is going to happen to them in the end. You know, that's so interesting on the embryos because I'd never thought about the backside of it. I've had friends who've had to do that and and done it and 
I just never thought about what happens later or if they don't get claimed or so that that'll be a fascinating book. Well, it's, and that's how it came to be. Honestly, I had a friend walk in a cocktail party one night and she had just had twins and she had just been at her like six month checkup. And she was like, Christy, literally for five years, all I thought about was freezing these embryos, doing IVF, getting these babies, doing IVF again, getting these babies. And she's like, now I have these babies and I have all these embryos left. And she's like, I don't know what to do with them. And I think it depends on, and that was something that I really had to look at too, because I think it depends on what your religious beliefs are. You know, for her, like her religious beliefs were such that that was life and she was not going to destroy it. And so, you know, she had some really difficult decisions to make about what to do with these embryos. And so that was something too, it took a while to kind of hit on the right idea because I wanted a story that that I felt like everyone would be able to relate to because I know there are a lot of people that would be like, whatever, it's like five cells, like, you know, throw them with the hypodermic needles. It's not a big deal. But, um, but I felt like, you know, everyone could relate to, you know, this woman is gone. This is the only part of her that he has left. What do you do in that situation? You know, how do you react? And so I, I felt like that was a situation that pretty much anyone could think, yeah, that would be a hard choice. And you're not getting into any of the alienating aspects of either side of that argument and people feeling strongly one way or the other. You're just dealing with that part of it. And I think that's great. In our today's world, that can be a sticky issue, but it sounds like you've covered it beautifully. It can be. It's just, it's like a whole new, a whole new ethical dilemma. What do you like to do when you're not reading and writing? Um, Nothing. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Well, that sounds nice. And I'm sure there's a lot of that been happening lately. (laughs) Those are my two great loves, reading and writing. So if I'm not doing those two things, no, um, I live at the beach, which is awesome. So I spent, we spent a lot of time either like on the beach or on the boat or outside. I have a young son. So we do a lot of outside stuff. We play tennis and he likes to play golf a lot. I don't like to play that much, but I like to ride in the golf cart. So that's good. And I'll play every now and then, but my poor dad, he wanted me to be a golfer so much and it just just didn't take. I love tennis, but golf was just never going to be my sport, unfortunately. Just didn't Um, stick with you. Just did not. I'm just not good at it. It's like a little slow, you know, it takes a long time. (laughs) But yeah, but I just basically anything sort of outside and on the water is great with me. Well, you have your design business too. I do. Well, yes, I, that's not really a hot, well, I, I felt like this was more of a for fun type thing, but yes, I do have an interior design blog called Design Chic and that does, it does take up a lot of my time, probably more than the books, believe it or not. I mean, it's just been, it's been great. Mom and I have done it for 10 years and it's become a great business and you know, we spend a lot of time. We're actually doing an entire overhaul of it right now. We're changing all of our features and converting a little bit more from just straight interiors, which we've been doing for 10 years. Um, we're moving a little bit more towards the lifestyle side of things. So you'll see more, more recipes, more reading picks, more, you know, that type of thing. So I'm excited for the change and I hope that our readers will be excited too. Well, that's neat. You're kind of incorporating your two separate businesses or things that you do into one. I love that. Yes. Thank you. Well, that's the hope. So we'll see. Well, I always enjoy all the pictures that you post on Instagram of all these beautiful homes. And when I'm with friends, I'm always showing them, look at this one. This is beautiful. Or look at that one. And uh, it's really fun to follow you and see all of those. Thank you. That is so nice. Well, I'm so glad that you joined me today. I always love talking with you. And I'd like to wrap up and ask you about your most favorite recent reads, if you have some books you'd like to recommend. 
Oh my gosh. Yes. I have so many that, but I'll only give you a couple. So I just finished Hello Summer by Mary Kay Andrews, which I just absolutely loved. It's such a good summer read. And I think it's her, it was my favorite of hers. I'm not saying it's her best book, but I just loved it. And I used to do like back in the day, I like worked for a newspaper and I would do the like police beat and I'd have to like go down to the magistrate's office at night and stuff. And there were like these little glimpses of this book that reminded me of that like small town reporter life. It was just, it was great, a great book. I just finished The Book of Lost Names by Kristen Harmel, which does not come out for like, I think a month. It comes out July 21st, I'm pretty sure. And I love that book so much. I was having my hair cut for like the first time in months and months. And I was like crying in, because I was like, am I hurting you? I'm like, no, this book is just really good. <laughs> so that was fantastic. And then I, another one that is coming out in August that I loved so much is called Louisiana Lucky by Julie Pinnell. Okay. I haven't seen that one. What's it about? Okay. It's so cute. So it is about four is it four sisters or three sisters? Forgive me because I read it like seven or eight months ago, but I loved it. I think it's three sisters who win the lottery. All of the ways that their lives change and all the things that happen to them that are extremely unexpected. Because I think, you know, you have these visions of what's going to happen if you win the lottery. And, And they do. And it's just, it's funny, but it's also, you know, it's warm and it's just, it's a great, great summer read. I loved it. That sounds like a ton of fun. I'll have to look for that one. And the Book of Lost Names, I've just heard so many great things about it. I actually just did a historical fiction roundup for She Reads for the summer, and it's on there. And I was thinking I need to get to it because it just, it sounds really, really good. It is. It's so good. It really is. And I'm actually working on my first historical novel right now. And it was interesting to read it from the other end now and be like, oh my gosh, all the research she had to do on that (laughs) paragraph right there. Well, you know, it's interesting because historical fiction writers do say that, that they're midway through writing, all of a sudden they're like, wait a minute, I, you know, would this be how someone spoke or what did this look like here? And then you're having to pull all your books out, the 11 books you're traveling with and look it up and say, okay, what's going to happen this way? So yeah, it probably would be a little bit more of stopping and starting. Yes. And I'm trying to read a lot of um, books from that time period too, so I can kind of have the lingo down, but it's a contemporary and historical story. So I'm like, Switching back and forth from like 26 year old in 2022 to, you know, 1895 woman. Like it's, it's very, it's very interesting, but it's been so fun and not as hard as I thought, honestly. I like those that have a contemporary storyline and a past storyline. Those are my favorite historical fiction. Okay, good. I'm so glad to know that. Well, good. Thank you. Well, I'm so glad that you joined me. I just can't tell you how much fun it was to talk with you about Feels Like Falling and everyone needs to go out and read it if they haven't yet. Thank you. I appreciate that so much. Thank you for having me, Cindy, and for all you have done to support all of my books, but especially Feels Like Falling. I'm so appreciative and I just hope more than anything that next year we are in Houston launching Under the Southern Sky in real life and I can hug you and We'll just have a good time. I think the same. And in fact, when you were talking about April 20th next year, I was like, I've got to get that calendared. Hopefully she will be in Houston and we can do the so. do one of an early parties here. I hope so. Because I was like literally launching with you this year. It was like launch day with Cindy. I was so excited about it. I know. I was just sick because we had the greatest event planned. So next year now, but thank you again for joining me. Thank you, Cindy. Have a good day. Thank you so much for listening to the Thoughts from a Page podcast. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. Leave a review wherever you listen to your podcast and tell all your friends about the Thoughts from a Page podcast. I would really appreciate it. 
You can purchase Feels Like Falling at Murder by the Book, where I work, and the link is in the show notes. I like the book so much, I put it on our Literary Salon's summer recommended reading list and hope you'll get to it. Thanks so much to KP Regan for the sound editing, and as always, thank you so much for listening. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts.